Welcome to Based On, an adaptation podcast where we talk film, TV series, and the books they're based on. I'm Pamela Portnoy. My guest today is Olga Zlotnick, who I've known since about the first or second grade. She's an attorney and an avid Harry Potter fan. She would often be my partner in crime to go see midnight movies whenever they were released in theaters. And we're going to be talking about the first book in the series, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which was made into the film directed by Chris Columbus, written for the screen by Steve Cloves, and it is, of course, based on the book by J.K. Rowling. Just a fair warning, there will most definitely be spoilers, so watch out. But you know, still tune in. Watch out. Still tune in. (laughs) Watch out, because I I have a feeling we're not just going to stick to the first book. Just yeah, knowing know. you, yeah, knowing have- you and the problems you have with the series, we're gonna go beyond. Fair, fair point, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> I'll do my best. Hi, Olga. <laughs> Hi, Pam. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Any time. So I thought it would be fun to start out this episode with a ten-question rapid-fire quiz, so that our listeners. Can you know get to know you a little bit more before we dive in? Great. Olga. Olga. Yes. Are you ready to okay. adapt? I'm ready to make up some things on the fly, yes. I love it. Okay. It's 10 questions. Question 1. Book before movie or movie before book? Book before movie. Happy ending or shocking twist? Shocking twist. Oh, most devastating book death. Probably Sirius Black in book five, and not just because we're talking about Harry Potter. Okay, I have a different one that's also Harry Potter. Okay, uh, favorite Dumbledore, fictional Dobby. Snape. Oh, that's fair. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Okay, continue. Sorry. <laughs> favorite fictional couple. Favorite fictional couple. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, let's just go with Pride and Prejudice because the first one that comes to mind. So, Mr. Darcy and Jane. Was that Jane? Yes, Jane. 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 No, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth. 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 That's what I meant. Jane, Jane marries with the older, old, yeah, 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 older sister. You're yeah. right. You're right. Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. Good choice. Very good came choice. to mind. <laughs> uh, favorite film adaptation. Wow, put me on the spot. I think put me on the spot with questions I've seen. Um, it's the rapid fire I, quiz. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, actually, since we're on the subject of Pride and Prejudice, but I do think it's probably true. The BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice is probably my You're favorite. S- that's incredible because my, if you were to ask me, I would say it would be the one with Kira Knightley directed by Joe Wright. But it's the second best adaptation of that film. But sure. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if we want to go modern adaptation, I'd say Bridget Jones's Diary. Of Pride and Prejudice. Least favorite film adaptation? Um, The vast majority of the Harry Potter series. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. And and probably The Count of Monte Cristo. That one was terrible as well. Oh, God. Okay. Favorite actor, male or female? Oh, I don't really have one. If I had to go with something, because we're on the spot, probably female, I'd say either Dame Maggie Smith, because she's my sole creature. And if I had... Yeah. And um, if I had to choose a man, I don't know at the moment. I can't think of a movie I've seen recently. Let's just go with Daniel Craig because I saw Knives Out while we were in quarantine. And that's currently, he's currently on the mind. 
he did a great job in Knives Out. I just he watched did a great job in Knives Out. Yeah, yeah, and and his eyes just like are popping. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. That's what I, that, that's what I like about him. Sure. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. You're swooning. <laughs> that's the vodka. <laughs> it's okay. I'm I'm on the wine train. It's fine. Um, as everything falls down, favorite fandom. Probably the Harry Potter fandom. If you could have drinks with any author, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm not very good at these questions. I think given our recent <laughs> conversations, I'm going to say Cormac McCarthy only because I would like to Are ask Are you joking what, me? <laughs> what the actual fuck is wrong with him? Like, what kind of dark place does your mind inhabit that, like, the fuck are you writing and why? You just want to yell at him. Not even the whole... yell. I just, I just want to like, like, like. Why have you sought like therapy? Have you like, I don't. Have you not never experienced joy like ever? I love how like I chose to read the road during quarantine. Shit's it's already all, I mean, like fucked up, and I it just threw me over the edge, and I was sobbing at the ending, and I had like people contacting me, sending me funny videos, and like thank God for this because this shit is bleak. You know, I couldn't sleep for a week after that, which is why I told you when you told me you were reading it, I thought you were crazy, and I've said it repeatedly. I just thought like when I told you, and you said. And I think I said, you know, this shit is dark. And you're like, just wait, it gets darker. And then when you think it couldn't get more dark, it just gets darker and darker. And then there's and just darker. no light anywhere. No. <laughs> it's fucking pitch black. Someone turn on a light bulb somewhere. Anything. <laughs> I don't think he ever heard of Dumbledore's quote, happiness can be found in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Yeah, he doesn't even know what a light switch is. Ambient light, yeah, I don't think he's ever encountered. Yeah. So you would have drinks with him and just be like, what the fuck? I mean, only because we like have been talking about him recently and I can't really think of another author off the top of my head because we're playing rapid fire and I'm terrible at rapid fire. So it would be more fun to have drinks with someone to like have a like a vigorous debate instead of having drinks with someone that like you super admire. I mean, I don't Not know that if you like met there's me. nothing admirable because i think he's a fantastic writer and that is oh, to no, be he's, admired, I, but. I, I think to be able to elicit that kind of fucked up feeling in someone through writing is um, it's it's an extraordinary talent i'm not suggesting he's not a good good author he's an extraordinarily good author he's just i mean i think true to my nature i would just want to be like but, but like what the fuck and i would just like <laughs> to hear him explain what the actual fuck <laughs> for the period of one dinner session over wine or whiskey? Oh, I don't think you can drink wine when you're talking about how fucked up a human being is. I think it would have to be whiskey. Yeah, you need to have some some scotch or some bourbon with that man. Yeah. Okay, good answer. I like it. <laughs> Favorite book or film quote? Ooh, quote? I mean, the problem with that is I don't know any. So this is it's gonna honestly, by the time that we're finished, it's going to sound like I've read three books in my life. But that's not actually true. But the only one that comes to mind. You're very well read. Uh, I don't know about well-read, but I, I do read a fair amount. But I think the reason this comes to mind is just because it's one of those rare quotes that I, for some reason, remember. I'm not very good at remembering quotes, but it's a truth universally acknowledged that a man with a fortune must be in want of a wife. And for some reason, that resonates with me. For so <laughs> many reasons, I think in part because <laughs> I'm at that point in my life where I like, I'm a 
self-supporting female and I'm like, yeah, rah, rah feminism, but I'm also kind of like, hello, are there any eligible, like, well-financed bachelors who are in multiple wife? <laughs> That's fucking Because I'm a little done with the uh, strong, independent woman thing. You're over it? <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah, yeah. You do it extraordinarily well. You're just tired. I, I respect that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, I was... I was thinking about this question too when I gave it to you. I'm like I retain film quotes way more than I retain quotes from literature. And so I also thought of one from Pride and Prejudice, but it it, it I looked it up and I don't think it was word for word in the book the way it was in the film. And it's the version I like. It's when Darcy says you have bewitched me body and soul and I yeah. I I love you. Aww. That one. <laughs> that one's dope that one's a good I mean, one since we're on Swoon. the subject of ad- adaptations and books and pride and prejudice because apparently that's the only thing i've read in <laughs> in bridget jones's diary there's the scene where mr darcy is at this like dinner party with his like l- like law part like a, a partner at his law f- current law firm and they're at this like big dinner party that bridget jones is at too and she's the only single person and everyone's kind of like railing on her for being single and at the end of the party, she's like walks is like leaving sort of dejected because a bunch of like married people were giving her a hard time. And as she's like going down the stairs to catch the cab, he like stops her and he's like something to the effect of like, I'm not very good at whatever expressing how I feel or whatnot, but for what it's worth, like I like you just the way you are. And that one That's so sweet. I know. That one's just swim right there. Yeah, I mean it's it's a great line, but it's also I think the actors give really good performances too. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no shit. If Colin first said to me he liked me just the way I am, like I don't really care what the context would be or what words he used, he could stutter for all I care. I completely agree. If Maddie McFadden was like, I never wish to be parted from you from this day forward, I, all right. Sure. You don't no have to speak, be. Yeah, no one speaks like that anymore, but that sounds fabulous. Let's go. Sure. I agree. I agree. Performance is everything. (laughs) Delivery counts. We got through all 10 of the rapid fire questions. Oh, shit. Okay. That's pretty impressive. It wasn't rapid fire at all. (laughs) Well, you know. We did our best, you guys. Speed it up. Like 2x the speed on delivery. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. You know what? We're setting the tone. Thank you. Now that we have a, a better idea about like your reading style, your you know preferences with literature and film, you've definitely more read more than three books. You've read probably hundreds and hundreds because you've always been a reader. Since I've known you, you've always been a reader. So who remembers everything? <laughs> I honestly, people will ask me, "Did you read this book?" And I'll say no, and then like an hour later, I'll be like, "Wait a minute, I did read that book." I don't have a very good memory with that. I agree. It's, it's, it's tough. Okay, so let's get into this. What is your experience with this particular series and or the first book? Are we talking book or film in this circumstance? Both, because you're here based, based on. on an adaptation podcast. I got there. Welcome. We're um, both here for the yeah. first time. <laughs> so I think it's funny the the first time I read the book, I think I was actually older than our cohort because I think it came out when we were in like the fourth grade ish. So we were just yes. a pitch too young. And I remember for some reason, like I had to talk my parents into letting me buy this book so I could read it. Really? My parents, 
yeah, I don't, I don't remember why, but I remember having this conversation with my parents about why, like, everyone's reading it. Like, why can't I read it? And they were like, why can't you read the classics? And I was like, I don't know how to explain to you that the classics are long and boring. To some extent, it felt like a real success story, like getting them to actually let me read it. And then I started reading it. And obviously, like, I fell in love because then you wait patiently, like, each year for the next book to come out. And, like, you and I would go to the, like, book releases at midnight, which were obviously Mm -hmm. way better than the film releases. But the film releases were really fun. So, I don't know. For me, it was always this, like, really interesting escape. But it was also this really interesting way... And it was like a totally different life. It was like boarding school on top of like, you know, magic and this idea that there could exist this entirely different world that maybe we don't know about because we're not paying attention or we're not like, you know, special enough or whatnot. And then at some point, the books just turned so dark and it just happened to coincide with this time when you hit like severe puberty and you hit this like really dark time and like growing up and... There was something about it, too, that was just so, like, honestly dark. And so I remember at some point I was reading, like, book five when, spoiler alert, Sirius dies, and I was bawling. And my mom walks by, and she looks at me, and she's like, you do know you're reading a book, right? I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) And I'm just (laughs) devastated, like, tears streaming down my face. My mom's like, this fucking sociopath that we're raising, like, how did this happen? (laughs) And so for me, in some ways, I don't know. I don't want to say it was like an emotional education, but it was like an education in like all these, like, I don't know. I don't think I had confronted maybe like the death of something that I cared about in that sense by that point in life. And so it was sort of an interesting, like there had been deaths in family and whatnot, but none that felt quite as close to this. Cause I felt so invested in the characters in this series um, in a way I've never felt as invested in any other character. And Harry already had experienced so much loss even before he joined this world that it, and you were on his side the whole time and he was kind of the lens by which you would view this world. So having that kind of death was so much, it was even more devastating because he had, he, it was so teed up for hope Yeah, because you thought that you, he was going to move in with Sirius and that they were going to yeah. create a life as a family and then it was taken yeah. away. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it was interesting, too, because I've reread the books so many times, and I've certainly reread them as I've gotten older. And so perspectives, I feel like, change. And I do have this recollection that the first few times I read the books, because I would try to reread them, like, as the new one was coming out. So I was, like, you know, really up to what was, like, current on what was going on in in the wizarding world. And I just remember there was a lot more innocence that I found in the books when I was reading them when I was younger and like now Mm. I was rereading book one and I found myself like like brought to nearly brought to tears so many times Mm -hmm. in like this very different way like when I was a kid it wouldn't have been quite as emotional so it's interesting to me that it's like changed for me over time but there's just it's, it's interesting how some of the innocence is lost but some of it is there's more purity in the innocence almost like seeing Harry when you're like, I'm now, you know, 29. Um, (laughs) You could get through that without laughing and be fabulous. I'm so sorry. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting. So I think my experience has definitely changed, but it was very, it's always been a very heavily invested experience in a way that I don't think I get quite as heavily invested in other books that I read. 
you know, just you close the book at the end of the day and you're like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like, that's a whole, you know, a whole life that's lived, a whole world that's come to now close. So. What parts in particular got you emotional while reading it uh, this week? Oh, God. So if in an ideal world, I would have had my paper copies, but I was working with um, my Kindle copy. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard to sort of flip back to places. But the one pages moment- of my paper copies are thin and very tissue like and sensitive and fragile and yeah I actually recently found out that my what would have been a first edition like book five gone or book three one or three or five and those are like two of my favorites are like nowhere to be found so I had to buy new ones and I was like actually very disappointed because those were like you know first editions and like in my mind at a point in time where I thought maybe my life would have children I was like oh like I would pass these down to my kid. They'd be under lock and key and like they'd only get one a year once they turn like 11. So would have been something great. But now instead they get like a, you know, 15th edition of books three and five. So Five and six, I think when I was in late high school, early college got misplaced. But I think we ended up finding them somewhere in the garage. I don't know why they were in the garage because that's exactly what I plan on doing. Like I keep, I have all my... First editions, even though my my um my book one is not because I yeah, mine was like you started reading it I think in fifth grade for a book report. That's how I got introduced to it. And um it's so funny how we remember the first time we read these books. Yeah. But yeah, it was for a book report in fifth grade. Yeah, I don't think that was a first edition, but the other ones it's like you wait for it to come out and you go the day, the night of. Um yeah, yeah, but I think, so to your question, the thing that made me tear up, so one of the things was the moment after Harry, he'd been down in, like, you know, the third floor corridor, had gone through the whole thing, had, like, face Voldemort the first time, and he wakes up in the hospital wing, like, three days later, and Hagrid comes to see him, and he has, mm-hmm. like, a, has a gift for him, he's like, I, you know, I asked, um, I stumbled door for a few extra like a day off or so to put this together and I sent owls to all of your fa- parents friends like I know you didn't have any pictures and it describes a like, Carrie opens this like leather bound book full of pictures and I think the line was something to the effect of like Hagrid says to Harry like you know I hope you like it and Harry didn't say anything but Hagrid understood and like now that makes me just like choke up and want to cry. And at the time, I think, I don't think I like felt anything particularly emotional when I read it the first time. Granted, you know, it's been a couple of years since the first time I read it, but like now it's just so much more like poignant and heartbreaking and touching and sweet and like so generous, um, which is a very different experience than probably when I was like little. And I was like, oh, that's cool. He got him a picture of all of his like, you know, family that he hadn't had before. So different experience have you seen the film more than you've reread the book no I've seen so I watched them with you right I think I've maybe seen the first movie maybe one or two times in between that and then I talk a lot of smack about the movies and decided to give them a second try a couple years ago and decided to watch all seven of them again I stand by my original position and then obviously rewatched the first one um, yesterday in preparation for today. So no, not even remotely close. Like there was a time where I would probably reread the series every Christmas or every holiday season. I don't know how you feel about it, but that scene that you're talking about in the book does still take place in the film, but it's at the platform when they're going 
back home for the summer at the end of the film. Did you have a problem with the fact that they moved it? So funny that you asked me if I had So if we're talking about it, yes. I think in the moment watching it, I've increasingly, I think, been detaching sort of Harry Potter as a movie from Harry Potter as a book. Yeah. Which maybe is the right thing, maybe is the wrong thing. I don't know. And so it doesn't, it doesn't sort of bother me in a vacuum, like if I'm just watching the film. But if we're talking about it, yeah, it does bother me because there's this moment of like sheer intimacy and vulnerability in Harry when he's standing, he's like alone in the hospital bed for the first time, sort of having any context for what's gone on. And I actually, even though I just finished reading this, can't remember if it was before or after Voldemort had already, or sorry, Dumbledore had already spoken to him. And I, I think it was after. And so I think Harry at this point now has like slightly more context. He understands that like the invisibility cloak was his father's. And like, there's this real moment of like just quiet intimacy of like, this is something I did. I've never had. And it's given to me by someone who is the first person to bring me back into touch with this world that I didn't know I belonged in. And it's just very, very quiet moment of solitude and privacy in which maybe because I tend to experience very strong emotions and prefer to deal with them on my own, that like the ability to have that feeling and to sit with that feeling in the solitude of a hospital bed when you have like this, the protection of Madame Pomfrey to like keep you and the outside world apart, to me feels so much more deeply personal than when you're like handed this book on a train platform amongst all of your like like friends and like, you know, student, like your fellow classmates boarding a train home. Um, mm-hmm. Just like I think, so there's a moment in the book when Harry just gets the cloak and he like the next day decides to try it out and like Ron's asleep and Harry has this thought that like, well, I want to try this out. And he thinks, well, should I wake Ron? And he's like, no, like I want to have this one experience by myself before I bring anyone else into it. And that right. again is like another moment. That. Yeah. It's like this intense moment of like, of like intimacy in these moments that particularly if you're like an orphan that grows up in a family where people abuse you, you don't, you don't get very moment, very many moments like that of like, well, this is mine. And this is like the one connection I have. And what would it have been like if like my dad had passed this cloak on to me when I went to school so I could cause trouble the way that he did. And it's like the first time you really get that experience. The interesting thing about that is there he he in the film he does use the cloak for the first time alone but they don't have a moment of introspection for the character which I think is really where books and films um, go their separate ways because it doesn't necessarily make interesting film to watch a character in contemplation right so while it was still true to the, the story spirit line. of what and the storyline of what was happening there are like these sweet thoughts that are embedded into the book that you want to see i don't know if it's through the acting or through some sort of device in the right. film that sometimes you get and sometimes you don't and that's just i feel like the not the problem but what inevitably comes with adapting a work for the screen yeah. So it was it was interesting because you sent me that link of the interview of J.K. Rowling with Steve, whose last name I can't remember, even though I just produced. Cloves. Cloves. 
which I didn't know until I saw that interview. And I didn't like really like do much research into the films until I decided to take on this project. Impressive that it was the same screenwriter working with her throughout the entire series. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting because I, you know, I sat down to watch it and they seemed so in tune, I guess, with one another in terms of how the adaptation was going to work. So one of the things that came up in their conversation was that, you know, Steve said something to JK Rowling about like, Hey, you know, a lot of authors sort of struggle with, you can't always stay true to the book, like word for word. And I think she had said it initially, like in an earlier part, she's like, you know, I knew you wouldn't be able to adapt it the exact same way I wrote it because these movies would be hours and hours and hours long. Which they would still have a market for. (laughs) Right. And so then you and me. Right. And so it's funny because then like what came up on YouTube immediately after this was an interview with JK Rowling and Daniel Radcliffe. And he was like, well, yeah, you know, I think if we did do a six hour movie one, like there's an audience for that. She's like, yeah, it should never happen. And I'm like, no, no, (laughs) I don't think you understand. Um, And it was, it was actually interesting to hear her say that because to me, like the film adaptation of a book should be okay. Well, let's bring the imagination to life. And Mm -hmm. so part of, I think, why I prefer book to film adaptation is that there's so much in a book that you can convey, like a depth of emotion and context and history that you can't convey in a movie or in any sort of visual medium. And I think they acknowledge that very beautifully among the two of them when they were talking. And it did give me a little perspective on the films, which is to say, like, it really shouldn't be viewed as, you know, truly this is Harry Potter come to life. It's not. It's like, you know, any other reincarnate. It's like a remix, basically, right? Of the it's original. It's a different medium. It cannot be a replication just because it is a different medium. Sure. Um, and that for me has always been like the the reason why I've hated the films is because there's so much that I love about the books that just gets left behind. And so much of it is nuanced and so much of it. And the nuances, I think why I love the book series so much. And there's only so much of that you can do through the visual medium in two and a half hours. Whereas, you know, it takes you like three and a half, four hours to read the book. So I think we, a lot of the time you and I agree on these kinds of things, but I think because I have, such a, I will admit you are, you read more than I do. I read a lot, but like you read more than I do. And I watch a lot of film. And because I have such a love for the medium, I don't know, I feel like I can forgive that stuff really easily. And I really do enjoy the surprises that do come from the medium. Like there are certain things that the team behind the film is going to discover because of what's available to them when it comes to the technology, when it comes to, you know, special effects, when it comes to dealing with actors, they, they're they going to have a, a, a reimagination of yeah. the text. And I am equally excited to see what they come up with. It might not be what I was picturing in my head when I was reading the book, but it's a combination of the comfort of the familiar mm-hmm. and the little surprises that they leave. I completely agree with you, particularly revisiting. You're like, but not that much surprise. <laughs> no, it's not even that. I think that I think that 
I just, maybe because I tend to read the books first, there's something to me about like the honesty of the experience with the book, right? And so whereas film, I think, or even if you think about like plays, right? Like what came to mind as I was thinking about this yesterday is like Shakespeare, right? Like that was never really a medium that was, that was, it was never writing that was meant to be read. It was writing that was meant to be acted and experienced. And there's something in that where a hundred percent, I imagine the bard would have wanted different people reading his scripts you at mean Billy? Times. Yeah, Billy. <laughs> Billy. I think Billy would have loved if people kind of over time you have such different experiences for the themes that he wrote and the plays that he wrote and the spoken word in that context carries so much more, I don't know, meaning as it's acted out with these people who are, you know, professional bring to lifers, if you will. Mm. But there's something to me about like books, particularly extraordinarily well-written books where like, okay, this has already been brought to life. So if you're going to choose to adapt it, you either have to completely deviate or you have to be really true. But like to straddle the middle to me is maybe that's what I struggled with. But that said, the counter example that comes to mind is I used to be a big fan of the Born Identity and that mm. entire series. And my dad once found out that it was based on a book. So he went and he read the book. And I remember I didn't bother to read it because I was like, eh, forget it. Who cares? But my dad comes back. He's like, book was complete Because you like There's Matt Damon, that- right? Right. Um, <laughs> and so my dad comes back. He's like, the book was complete trash. They did the right thing, like making that into a movie. The movies are way better. And so certainly I think there are contexts in which. Um, That's very rare for that to happen, I feel. I mean, I think so, but I, like, I wonder, like, I was recently watching, God, you gotta love quarantine, I was watching um, the 007 series, right, and it happens to be that on HBO right now, they've got, like, Casino Royale, and I think maybe one other of the Daniel Craig movies, and, you know, I think he's grown to be my favorite Bond, he didn't used to be my favorite Bond, it used to be that my favorite Bond was a split between um, Pierce Brosnan Brosnan and, and... uh, what's his name, Scottish, beautiful Um, man. Sean Connery. Beautiful. Sean Connery. Yes. It used to be this, like a split between the two of them. And then I like made the mistake of like reading some interview with Daniel Craig. And I think it was like in GQ or something else. And I like read it and there was like, again, just great writing by the journalist who wrote this article, but like just describing Daniel Craig and his like mannerisms and then just describing the like world's filthiest fucking joke. And I was like, okay, yeah. I get it. Move on. Just take it. Run with it. It's cool. You got this. I'm right behind you. Let's just rewatch all of them. So he is quite a man. Yeah, no, but like, and so what, but one of the things that I was listening to recently because of quarantine and because all of this is on the TV, it was like an interview, I think with some of the producers behind the bond series. And they were talking about like, look, you know, we were trying to reinvigorate the series that had been bogged down in sort of a lot of like visual effects and like panache and like shit that could never possibly happen, which by the way, I re- rewatched, I think tomorrow never dies or something, which is one of the, like, I think it's the one with Pierce Brosnan and Halle Berry. And he's like, he's like fucking kite surfing on a like falling iceberg. Like that shit's not real. Like it's like the visual effects on that are just excessive. I think I've maybe only saw that one once. I think golden eye was what I grew up on. Yeah. And I mean, and like going back and comparing the movies, 
and the producers sort of behind the the shop that produces the Bond series, we're talking about, look, you know, we're trying to reinvigorate this series with something a little bit more truthful, going back a little bit more to sort of Ian Fleming's sort of idea of who Bond was. And I've never read an Ian Fleming book. And I wonder now, would I ever be able to read like Ian Fleming and his, like his version of Bond? Because in my mind, like Bond is always like the, you know, the, the film version of Bond. Right. I don't know. I don't know. But I, having listened to that discussion with J.K. Rowling and Steve, whose last name I still refuse to remember. <laughs> Clubs, um, it's okay. <laughs> Stevie. I have more appreciation for what it means to adapt a film. And I will be, yeah. I think I'm more forgiving of the series than I would be in part because I'm willing to see it through a lens of you tried to bring to life something else, not necessarily bring to life the book, but bring to life an idea. And the idea right. happens to have all this influence of this series. But for me, they should have just retitled it then, like, Magical Boy and something. But <laughs> no it shouldn't have been way. Harry it's Potter. close enough, Olga. It's close enough that it is the same book. Uh, Especially, I, I, will, I will say this. Like, Sorcerer's Stone, uh, Chris Columbus sticks very, very close to the book probably the closest out of all the directors for sure for sure to the to the book for sure um i think after book three that's Man. really when just because of the length of the novels that's when the director started to have to take creative license fine but i will tell you that in book three <laughs> i stopped having faith in the movies right around film three where you learn nothing and I emphasize the word nothing <laughs> about the Marauders map. And I don't understand how you're supposed to understand Harry, how you're supposed to understand like the shit he gets into when you don't understand that the Marauders map is the legacy of not just his father, but his father and his three best friends. Yeah. And they skip over that shit. Like it's, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like I, what, you can stop making as far as I'm concerned and I realize I'm in the wrong whatever but as far as I'm concerned at that point you you're not in the wrong to, like, it's totally subjective it's fine no it's fine you can just but at that point it's not Harry Potter because you just don't you don't have I don't know you don't have the like depth of the emotional experience of like holy shit like my best friend's older brothers have been running around with my dad like you know legacy his like schoolboy like legacy no no, at that point, it's not Harry Potter. I mean, I, f I feel like, I don't know, like, this is where we differ, because I feel like the books, did, the movies did an incredible job. And yes, I do agree that like, that adds a whole element of understanding of his connection to uh, his dad and Lupin and Sirius. And not only that, but like, also their relationship to Snape. That being said, I don't know, this is like where I become an acting nerd, right? Because I think it really helped that Chris Columbus stuck so, and Steve Clove stuck so close to the vision in book one. But as the actors started to mature, like particularly the kids, right? Like it was like their first, most of their first movies. I know it was Emma Watson's. I think, I think Daniel Radcliffe did something before that, but they were all like really young and they matured while the movies went and they became better actors, right? But I think like, Gary Oldman being serious, right? It brought a level of, you know, he brought it so you kind of understood the connection. 
Yeah, but like, and also the writing kind of helped, but. I don't know why they chose to exclude that. I'm sure, like, we should get Steve Cloves online and ask. But, (laughs) like, like, think about, like, how much better you understand the depth of the betrayal of Peter Pettigrew when you understand that he is a Wormtail, which you don't understand. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many, like, maybe that's just, like, the problem with J.K. Rowling is she wrote a book that has way too many levels, like, way too much depth, way too much, like, emotion, (laughs) like, Great. And so, again, they shouldn't have called it Harry Potter and they should have called it Magical Boy in whatever <laughs> adventure you want to put him in. But no, like, it's still good. It's still It's a great to- film. Standalone film. Great film. Great, like, acting. Great directing. Great effects. Great, like, you know, the person I've always thought it'd be cool to be the person who goes out and picks where you film things. But, like, you know, by book three, it's no longer Harry Potter and it is. I understand where you're coming from. I just think it's funny. That interview that you and I were watching, she talks about, they they both talk about how she was actually the champion of them changing things more than anyone else because she was more than understanding about the medium requiring changes. And, and I respect the medium of film because I too, I love movies, right? Like my cousin Vinny, that movie does not play as a book. It doesn't, it just will not. <laughs> like there's no one who can play Vinny the way that Joe Pesci does. There's like a reason Marissa Tomei got an Academy Marissa Award Tomei. for that Love like, that. and I'm I'm all about that as a medium. But to me, it was like taking my childhood. Like this was my imaginary world, and you, like I, <laughs> it just felt like kind of like this balloon inside of my heart got a little deflated, and so I tend not to watch the movies, which is not at all to poo-poo the director the screenwriter stevie did a wonderful job stevie you're just you're oh a young queen God. i mean what can i tell you and he, he like you know he did this wonderful thing where he was like yeah hermione was always my favorite character and i'm like dude good job me tooing the movement um and like you know he's like i love writing women and i'm like you know great happy for you but also you wrote a like a film series called magical boy and the and it's okay but we're gonna have to agree to disagree hundred percent. We're gonna have That's to. what this is about. This is about. Can yeah. we just take a moment of appreciation for him, though? Because can you imagine being the guy that has to adapt that into a screenplay? Oh fuck no! I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like to to write the series the way that he did it. I think he did a phenomenal job, and I think given that he couldn't literally take verbatim everything that happened in all seven novels and turn them into film, he did create a very coherent story. He like created beautiful writing like he did a fabulous job he just he wrote a book <laughs> a movie series called magical boy <laughs> not magical boy it's not and magical adventure. boy <laughs> no <laughs> magical boy and the adventures of the adventures of magical no. boy in a, absolutely not. In an eight-part movie <laughs> this is a sh- this is no absolutely not okay speaking of which i want to i want to know your thoughts on casting she takes a sip of her drink. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I fell in love with Rupert Grint and Emma Watson. Well, Rupert Grint, I fell in love oh with immediately God. because I thought he was just the most like coquettish Ron you could have ever imagined. And like, I he's will so say cute. that he's adorable. So cute. And he's so lost all of the time in, in like the perfect way that Ron is lost literally in every moment of his life. He's just so confused. I thought that was like fabulous casting. Absolutely amazing. Obviously, 
Dame Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall. Yes. Fabulous. No one else. Truly not. And I, I mean, she, I mean, for a whole host of other reasons, she's just an absolute, like, just amazing. Actress. She's just, I like, I, lo- I look at her and I'm like, I, I, like, I aspire to be you when I, like, when I grow up because you're just like, everything rolls off her shoulder, like, take no shit, like, has a com- comment to everything. And she's seldom wrong. She's just she, like, that's what it is. She has a good grasp of her power without trying. I saw her in, um, she played this movie where she, she played this role where she was in this, it was a, like a true story, based on a true story. This author lived in a house and she lived in a van in his house, in his driveway. I think it's even called something like the lady in the van or something like that. And she was, she was spectacular. She was just breathtakingly spectacular. I'll have to watch it and I don't doubt it. And to to know her in like, you know, things like Downton Abbey and then to see her in like Harry Potter and I've seen her do interviews where she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't watch it. Like no one wants to, I don't, I don't care. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, Yas Queen, like, that's just amazing. Like, you're so fabulous that you're just like, I don't even want to watch. And it's, that's the reason people know her, which is a disservice to her career as an actress, but love her. So I thought that was fabulous casting. Can we talk about Alan Rickman as Snape? I, I mean... I love him as Snape. I don't love it when he like bursts into the classroom the first time you see him in this like oh drama my God, queen way. So I love it so much. <laughs> Cause I feel like he would have just been waiting impatiently. Like I almost feel like the scene in the movie where like McGonagall sitting as a cat on the desk and then transfigures herself when the boys come in late, which by the way, everyone knows the only class the Gryffindors had with the Slytherins was potion. So why the fuck Draco Malfoy was sitting in that transfiguration <laughs> class on TV? I don't know, but whatever. And it's like, that to me seems like more something like Snape would do where he'd be sitting like you'd run in late and be like oh shit I'm okay and then he'd like show up and be like I will teach you how to like stop her death and you're like great I'm late I will teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses there's actually a great um interview of Dame Maggie Smith uh talking about working with Alan Rickman particularly towards the last film Alan Rickman as Snape would very like he would speak in a very calculated manner. And she's like, God, get on with it. Because <laughs> he'd be like, I will teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory. <laughs> very slow. And he, which I think is very true to the character. Totally. He's like, very kind of like slimy and greasy and kind of a giant dick. And bitter and sad. I, no, I'm not discounting that he's your favorite or he's that he is tied with Hermione for my favorite I certainly think that like over time Hermione's character in the films definitely the choice became increasingly great as the films progressed because I think Emma Watson sort of really grew into her own as this like female character who was like yeah I'm a brainiac but it turns out that like I can walk this like very narrow line of like rule following and rule breaking and like keep in line these two kind of idiots um (laughs) and certainly that's what you see in Hermione as she grows and Emma Watson certainly did that and she was I thought just a spectacular kind of annoying in the first movie up until the whole troll series well that's the whole line in the in that's one of my favorite quotes of the series it's like there are something to the effect of there are lots of things that can happen to make you be friends you got to read it to me 
Yeah, hold on. You got to bear with me because I got to find it in a, you know, on a Kindle because heaven forbid that like I actually keep my Harry Potter books with me at all times. Oh, I found it. I found it on my thing. Yeah, thank you. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other and knocking out a 12 foot mountain troll is one of them. Yeah, that's fabulous. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I will say though, as far as like adaptations go, like I think that in the books, J.K. Rowling, I think, was much more charitable to Hermione in how, like, Hermione became, like, one of the friends, like, how they became the trio. And, like, I think Hermione softened a lot more in the books than she did in the movies, in part because she had more time in the books to sort of, like, you could see them developing, like, oh, all the time they spent in the library, like, looking up who Nicholas Flamel was. And in the books, like, she still has this moment where she shows up, like, right before they're leaving for Christmas. Sorry, in the film, she shows up, like, right before she leaves for Christmas break. And um, Harry and Ron are playing wizarding chess in the Great Hall, which I think is actually the common room, but whatever. But so she walks up and she's, like, very bossly, like, well, of course you're going to go to the library and go read about Nicholas Flamel, right? But I think in the books, it was much more like an organic growth between the three of them where like they were all agreed that this was going to happen. And so there was this element, I thought, in the first movie where Hermione Granger and the way that Emma Watson, I think, was forced to play her by virtue of the way the script was written was she what like she remained, I thought, a little bit more like bossy and haughty than I think she might have come off to people who had read the book, which is to say she sort of grew into this sort of the the adult figure among the trio, like the responsible figure among the trio, but they kind of got there together, which it right. almost seemed like she was dragging them to where they needed to go in the film. Um, That's honestly kind of a, a thought that I had too when I was rereading. Hermione in the films is not given as much credit as she is in the book. I think that's right. Particularly one thing I noticed at the end is when they're getting through the obstacles to get to the Sorcerer's Stone. Something that's beautiful about the films, and it totally lends itself to the medium because there's like a payoff, is that each of them has their kind of shining moment, right? Like Ron uh, does the chess set, Hermione does the devil snare slaying, and then Harry flies the broom, catches the key, and goes on to deal with Voldemort. But in the books... Hermione and Ron both hop on brooms to help Harry catch the key. Hermione well, I, handles the potion. Yeah, and so but but even taking a step back, like I thought it was interesting where it took Hermione a second to get her like her wits back about her because in the devil snare in the book, it wasn't even that like you had to relax, right? Like it had to be you needed light and there was this moment where she's like, "Oh, that's right, you need light." We need wood. She, we need wood. And <laughs> Ron yells at her like, are, "What do you mean wood? What are you looking for wood? Aren't we like are you awake or what?" I actually wrote down a note saying, "This girl wood. What do you mean wood?" Um that I was going to also mention like Ron also is way funnier in the books. I agree. Although I Rupert, agree. Grant, Rupert Grant is charming, like, beyond fabulous. words. And it was yeah, fabulous yeah. casting. And he's, like, super cute. And, like, he's supposed to be ganglier in the books. But, like, it doesn't matter because Rupert Grant is so charming and cute. But, yeah, like, Hermione does, like, fumble a little bit because she knew what to do. But she's like, wait, are you not a witch? <laughs> Absolutely. And so there was <laughs> that was moment where, flames like. flames <laughs> in the yeah. pots. <laughs> and she needed a moment to sort of get caught up. But then, like you know, the reasonableness of her then going forward where like Ron, like you said, like he has a shining moment with the chess set, which is so nicely set up 
in the book as like they're playing at Christmas and, you know, Harry's trying to get better. And then I thought the real shining moment of Hermione in the books was like this moment where she's like, so many witches and wizards are just terrible at logic. They would never be able to get past this. And I thought from like, from Rowling's perspective, it was such a beautiful, like, here's this like brilliant young girl who's like using logic, which like, go you sweetheart. Like you, like you figured it out. Like, you know, you outbrained everyone. And like, Harry doesn't know what to do. He has no idea what to do. And like, you figured it out. He wouldn't have gotten where he is. Exactly. And to like cut that out was, right. And like to cut that out was in some sense, I mean, I get it. You have to condense it for the movie, but to cut that out was in some ways, I thought a dis, a disservice to the character of Hermione. And then she's tasked obviously with like, go save Ron, go like wake his ass up, like go get a broom, go find Dumbledore. Then it starts to get into the question of, okay, why did they cut it out? Was it for time or was it because they knew that Hermione would come off as the stronger character and they need Harry to come off as a stronger character because it is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? Well, in the film, it's Magical Boy and the Adventures of. (laughs) (laughs) It was interesting because one of the things that J.K. Rowling said in this interview with Stevie was that... um, was that, you know, Harry is just the vessel and it's really the other characters that kind of shine. And so I do think that because sort of when you're writing the screenplay and you're selling it as Harry Potter, even though it's the adventures of Magical Boy in whatever kingdom. Oh my God, you're going to have to because <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, it, you kind of, I think, are maybe forced when you're writing that screenplay to make Harry Potter kind of the star. And I do think, yes, having this moment where like in a crisis, Hermione is the only reason you got to even face Quirrell and Voldemort is, I think, less exciting than the reality of how that broke out. Look at me, the reality. Jesus Christ, it was all fiction. But I mean, because I would be down to call the book Hermione Granger and the Two Dum Dums, (laughs) like, (laughs) which would not be an inaccurate description of overall one of the themes of the book. Particularly, like, with Ron, like, in book six. Let's be real. Hermione Granger and Dum Dum. I don't know. In, like, book four, when he's all upset about, like, Crumb, and he's like, why'd you go around like, I I don't know. That's what I fucking love about Ron, is that he's written as a human being. He is so flawed. And he's human. Well, I think they're all so flawed. That's what I think one of, like... That's what I think makes this book so interesting or this series so interesting is they're all so flawed. Like not a single character in that book in that series is perfect or even close to or even, you know, minimally flawed. Like they're all so broken and so flawed and it's like fabulous. It's beautifully written. What did you think about Harry, Harry's casting? Um, I feel like Harry is very controversial. I think I probably fall in the camp of he's not my favorite casting choice. Really? Um, but I think he gets a lot of credit for sort of acting it really well, particularly as he got older and sort oh of my God, as he got older, class, like first class actor as he got older and older. But a lot of people at the beginning had so many problems with the fact that he didn't have green eyes and even well, Rowling was like, listen, like, it only matters that he has the same eyes as his mom. His mother, yeah. It wasn't the eyes that bothered me. It was something about, I think, because Rupert was so charming. And mm. Hermione was so kind of 
simultaneously bossy and know-it-all and a little annoying in the first book and or in the first not in the first book but in the first movie right in the first book I think we just discussed she like she warms on you very quickly but in the first movie they get it she has a hard go of it frankly and like there's no really good fix for her in the first movie but you still like her character has so much personality whereas Daniel Radcliffe and part of it I suppose is that you know J.K. Rowling never really gave Harry any personality because all of his personality was sort of the internal emotions he was feeling about his life experiences. But to me, because it's so hard in film to convey that like mental gymnastics that people do, he just seemed like kind of a dud, which is, I think it would be so interesting to like get a chapter from Ron or Hermione's perspective on Harry's behavior, particularly when he hits like the, like the pubescent, like angsty phase, like right around the time that he got interested in Cho Chang. Because I I think the personality that we would get out of him is like, what is wrong with? (laughs) I think that's fair, right? I think that's fair. Um, Yeah. Cause I think you don't, you just don't get a chance to see Harry for a character. As you're, and certainly the only reason I think you see Carrie, Harry as a character when you're reading the book is because you view the world through him and through his yeah. eyes. And so you get all of the benefit of getting to see, like, you know, Ron as a personality, even though you have some insight into why Ron feels the way he feels certain things. You don't really get much of that for Hermione, but you get to see her personality and you get to see her the way you'd meet, like the way I, I, I meet and know you, right? Like I know you entirely through interactions with you. I have no idea what goes on in your mind on a regular basis. Unlike Harry, where like, that's all we have is we're privy to his ideas and his thoughts and his feelings. And certainly when you're reading, that's not at all boring. When you're watching, it's boring as hell because, like, this person has no personality. They're just experiencing the world and watching it happen to them. But it's so key because that's your way in. Right. Certainly through the book, through the film, I think maybe that was sort of frustrating is, like, you know, I wanted more out of him or, like, you were hoping there'd be some interaction between – you know, Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grant and Emma Watson that would like when you put them together would be some sort of magic that you might not have otherwise been able to see. And so as far as adaptations had gone, if you were going to rewrite Magical Boy and the Kingdom of, (laughs) you would have at least made the like the interactions between the trios given Harry the, the benefit of a personality would have maybe been a start. I don't know. Which is it's it's rough on Daniel Radcliffe because I do think certainly as the as the movies got darker and as they got older, oh my god, he did an incredible job. job. Yeah, he's a class act. I mean, I have mad respect for Daniel Radcliffe's acting chops, um, and I really respect that like he wasn't the type of actor that was like, oh well, I got this once in a lifetime role, and I am now out of the game. Like there are so many interviews of him where he talks about how he the the challenge was that he was booked for the the whole ten years to do this role that he like didn't get the opportunity to play other roles. That is yeah. that is an actor right there. And so I, I absolutely love him and he got only better and better as he grew up. No argument for me. I agree they all kind of grew. I don't know if I said it earlier or later or when, but like I always talk about how like it would be interesting to get chapters in Hermione's point of view or Ron's point of view so we can see how much of a character Harry is particularly I, I when he's anxiety ridden <laughs> yeah 
But, like, not just anxiety-ridden, but, like, when he's making these choices when, like, the other characters, and this obviously is, there's no real way, really good way to have this conversation just based on book one and movie one, but if you think about, like, future books and future movies where, you know, he makes all these decisions, I think the same way that any human being does, sometimes too rashly, sometimes based solely off of, like, nerves or concern or, like, heat of the moment. Or pride. And to be, pride. And to make those, to see, to be the people closest to the poor decision maker at the time that he's making those decisions and to sort of see that from the third party perspective would be extraordinarily interesting. And obviously neither book nor film ever takes us there. We only ever see the world through Harry's eyes, as flawed as those eyeballs are. No pun intended. But lovable. Still lovable. No, certainly lovable. And certainly I, I don't think the book would would be what it was if it weren't for sort of seeing everything through Harry's eyes. But it, it just... I really, I wonder if that's like just demonstrative of Rowling's skill that he's so relatable and that he is the device by which we see the world because he is probably the character that like most people probably relate to the most. Like there are parts of Hermione that like I really relate to and want to relate to more. But at the end of the day, because we've had the privilege of like looking at the world through Harry, like we automatically relate to him the most, but there are other characters and they're like, um, there are, there are moments in McGonagall that I really relate to. And there are moments in Hermione that I really relate to and ron for ron's pride his ego oh my god but um, it's interesting that you totally relate to that yeah so what's interesting to me about what you say though it's because we get hints i think of like how we might have viewed harry if we were viewing him from the outside and i think the sorting hat moment in the book is a really good example and obviously in the film it's the same and sort of in the film you get the difference of like everything that the, the conversation between Harry and the sorting hat happens out loud versus just that's inside. one moment where you get to see what's going on inside his head yeah and it's interesting to me that you know when you're when you're seeing you get this this blip of a perspective of Harry through the eyes of the sorting hat and the sorting hats like you know you've got a thirst to prove yourself which we I think we all know and that I think that analysis carries through as you read the book but then he also says plenty of talent here I see. But I think Mm -hmm. when you're viewing the world through Harry's eyes, you don't see that raw talent. Certainly, I think I would view Hermione as significantly more talented than Harry. Absolutely. And in some ways, the flaw of like Dumbledore choosing and Voldemort choosing Harry as like this, you know, the weapon of choice, the like true, um, the true enemy, like the true, you know, person that you're going to, you have to conquer in order to conquer the magical world. I think... To me, I never saw that because to me, maybe seeing the world through Harry's eyes, Harry seemed so ordinary. And maybe. Do you have I think a the problem f- with the fate aspect? I don't. I mean, the fate aspect is a so, totally different conversation, I think, in my mind, and a super interesting conversation of the fate element. But I think it's more that when you compare the, it, for me, sort of, you compare the sorting hat describing Harry as all of these things, but then viewing the world, the wizarding world and every experience you read about through Harry, Harry to me seems so ordinary. And maybe the reason that you're saying everyone resonates with Harry is because we're ordinary. We're all ordinary, but I think also a lot of people have a sense of ordinariness about them. Like they wonder, am I an ordinary rather than extraordinary? And so it's much easier to resonate with that 
than it is to resonate with the extraordinary. I think granted I'm, I don't know. I'm a big fan of self-deprecation in general, but you are, that maybe is a piece of why he feels like he resonates so much is because there is, I think an inclination in many people to feel like, Oh, I'm so ordinary compared to all these other things. Because again, I think in my mind, Hermione is much more extraordinary than Harry in so many different ways. And she seems so much more talented. And yet we're given this very important clue at the very beginning that Harry is just brimming with talent and skill. Right. So it's it's just interesting to me that you've got those, in my mind, very competing opinions of one person. And I think it's the opinion that you see your, the world through that ends up governing your ultimate interpretation of the character, your feelings towards the character. I agree. I also think there's an aspect of there being a little bit of each of them in everybody. Certainly. Like Hermione had didn't have the same upbringing as Harry because he did grow up in a household, you know, being abused by, you know, his aunt and uncle and his cousin. But Hermione also grew up in a non-magical household. But was super supportive parents. That's true. So they did have different support systems and legs up. She had a leg up on him in that capacity. But who knows if she was magical from day one or if this came as a complete surprise to her, right? Because he knew that something was off with him, but he like just, I don't know if he thought much about it or just threw it out as like, everyone thinks I'm a troublemaker because these just strange things happen around me. Yeah, that's a fair point. So he did have this talent since he was very little. That's a fair point. And it kind of was bursting out of him like a boiling pot of water. But I don't know if Hermione had the same experience. Hermione is just a hard worker, which is its own brand of talent. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a fair point. I've, I've and she's a fucking that. powerful witch. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hadn't actually considered that, and I think that's actually a very, a very good point. Yeah, I think you completely forget about Harry's, Harry's sort of natural capacity because you obviously you see it through his eyes, and you don't actually know any of Hermione's history. That's a good point. Yeah, like you get to see his, um, like I'd love to see Hermione growing up. Like I'd love a little bit of insight into her childhood. Like that's probably one of the saddest parts of the series. Like not to like deviate from book one, but like when she erases her parents' memories in the last book. That is probably one of the saddest things I've ever read in my life. But in the first book, we get to see Harry like at the zoo accidentally make the glass disappear between the snake cage and Dudley. And that's just his magic bursting out of him. Yeah. It's actually interesting that you mentioned that about Hermione. Cause I think even like Ron, we get insight into his life because Ron becomes like Harry's entrance into the magical world. Right. And so you get to see Ron's family life. You get to see Ron's like home life and, and the magical life that comes with that. And you literally never, ever get any background about Hermione other than that time she's like, you know, on a trip with her family and certainly flipping back to our earlier conversation with the epilogue, like how fucked up is it that we literally never learn whether Hermione was ever able to like undo that particular bit of magic that potentially could have saved her parents' life, but ended up being completely unnecessary. Right. Um, That's why Hermione's top two of my favorite characters. Like I think she sacrifices Aside from the people that actually do die, like, I think Hermione's sacrifice is just out of control. 
Yeah. Especially because, and I feel like you and I relate to this a lot because you and I are both only children as is And only daughters. Only daughters. So that hits just like in a really profound way for me. And I'm sure for you too. Yeah. Of two professional working parents. And maybe this is why you and I bonded over the story so much because we are only children and we spent a lot of time alone in our rooms growing up and there is a certain kind of magic to friendship making and having a place outside of your immediate family where you feel like you belong. Yeah. Which I think certainly, certainly not as a child and definitely not as an adult do I ever really feel that. And so it is like, maybe that is part of the reason that this entire universe resonates so closely or so deeply for me. But yeah, no, it's, you know, Harry Potter, the Harry Potter world versus the magical boy world is, I think, an interesting discussion. Two very, not very different worlds, but two different worlds. Would the burrow hit you differently when you were reading? Like, wasn't that so profound having, like Hogwarts was like one place that was written as like an absolute dream it's this dangerous like magical mystical world where you can make friends and you you know you try out your skills and you're like you're you're head of the coop right yeah but then going to the borough it's like another magical place and it's your best friend's place and there's something very comforting about the borough and I think I was envious because of the amount of siblings that Ron did have. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I think it was the family element of it, which isn't to say, like, I mean, I come from a very good family and I have no business at all complaining so about do I. that. But, right. And, but there's something about, I've always envied my friends who have siblings, particularly friends who have more than one sibling, because I think that, I think you build relationships differently. I think you have a very different view of the world when you're a sibling. I think obviously there are different issues that come up as you're growing up when you have siblings versus not. But even as you grow older, the different sort of what it must be like when you're, you know, you're Fred and George and you've got this whole family around you and different siblings that have accomplished different things. And so maybe less pressure to like go off and be the, you know, the successful family member working for Gringotts or like raising, you know, or working with dragons in Romania versus, you know, when you're the only child and like you have to maybe make the choice that's like the most responsible one, which is in some sense, like what Hermione has got to deal with versus Harry who literally has no family. You carry on the family name or you have to make your family proud. Yeah. There's there's a, a certain amount of pressure. Yeah. That's so interesting. Are there any um, changes in the storyline that have happened in this film, in book one and film one, that you feel were okay or unacceptable? Like, how do you feel about Peeves not being in the film? Okay, so actually, until you mentioned that, I hadn't actually realized that. Hello. Okay, what? <laughs> Peeves. I'm telling you, this Peeves is not Harry Potter. This is, is fucking, not in the yeah. film series. <laughs> Listen, you cannot do a shot by shot of Harry Potter because it would it would take it would be forever. And even if you did do it shot by shot, people would still not be satisfied. Magical, the adventures of the magical boy. I'm telling you, that's what this movie yeah, film, film series would have been would called. Not be satisfied if scene by scene it was transcribed into film. I feel like you would still not be satisfied. 
I would be much more satisfied. I'm really disappointed now that I didn't realize that Peeves has never been in this. You didn't realize that Peeves was not in the film? No, because he plays such an important role in the books, and I don't know how I missed it, but he is, like, one of those characters, like, he's always pissing people off, but at the very end, I feel like, like, there are moments, like, in book five, was it, where he's, like, pelting, what's her name? God, the, like, evil cat lady <laughs> with chalk on her way out, and you're like, that's right, like, Peeves ultimately, like, you stand... Umbridge. Umbridge. You ultimately stand for the good of Hogwarts and the tradition and the value, and you're just pelting this evil human with chalk on her way out, and I'm like, that's right, Peeves, you do your thing. What's funny is, like, you get to see the Hogwarts ghosts, right, in the movie, but, like, for some reason, you don't get to see the poltergeist. I don't know if it's because – I don't know why they didn't include Peeves. Because you can convey a poltergeist on film. It's just you don't see them. You just see, like, what effect they have on their environment, on their surroundings. Like, you would – like, in this book, you see Peeves um, playing tennis by himself. So you would just see, like, a tennis ball, like, bouncing against the wall, you know? And causing, like, a lot of trouble and, like, getting in Harry and Ron's way when they're, like, out late at night, you know? But, yeah, they chose not to include him. There are so many negotiations that the characters have. In, like, every book, at some point, you're negotiating with Peeves about something. Like, Peeves don't tell so-and-so that something happened. And Peeves is always, like, the dick that's like, no, I'm going to tell unless you, like, I don't know, do 45 jumping jacks and, like, stand on your head and give me a, like, smoothie and I, and I don't know. I just, he's actually very critical. And I'm actually disappointed in myself for not noticing that he was missing all of this time. One other, there's another thing that um, I noticed in the film that wasn't in the film that was in the book. Okay. The fight at the Quidditch match. And it was Neville and Ron versus Malfoy, Crabbe, and Guile. Yeah. But Okay. But overall, I think if you go back and watch the films, like Neville doesn't play a very important role in the films over time until... I don't even actually remember it the seventh It bothers book. me because Neville is so important. That's probably one of the very few things that bothers me because Neville is another one of my favorite characters and he's so important. Right. And you never learn that because, because he, he's like the one character that it really could have been Neville instead of Harry. Right. And so going back to our like earlier discussion about fate and, and, and whether or not it's the fate that bothers me. And I still think that's a completely separate topic. That's a super interesting topic, but but Neville, like, the depth of the story is that Harry's, quote, fate is basically a function of one person's choice between two people. And Neville was the other person. And I think once you learn that fact, you see, start to see Neville through such different eyes. And Neville just never gets a chance to, like, you never get a chance to know Neville in the movies. And that, in some ways, just really... Just like all those moments, like when he's... He had his comeuppance in the movies, though, in both the movies and the books towards the end. Yeah, no, but Neville was a different... But to me, so that wasn't fair. Like, Neville just didn't get as much credit. And I think part of the reason that you had that fight, right, was because Neville had been caught out at night. They were doing... It was, like, the first time that Neville was, like, he got in trouble for something and he was sleeping outside and they, like, told him the password, but the, like, fat lady wasn't in the portrait I know and like you know and he's like all upset like Malfoy's already told me I'm like worthless or whatever and the trio like I think it was Harry tells him like you know Neville you're You're worth 12 12 of them them or something and and he like you know he says that to Crabbe and Goyle and that's his big like oh I like I'm better than you kind of like moment and it's just like 
it's so heartbreaking because kids are so cruel. And it's this moment where like Neville stands up for himself and then he like, you know, he pummels the other guys and probably got really beat up and we never really revisit that. But like, yeah. Well, I think that's so crucial to Neville's development as a character because his arc from book one to the end of the series is him embracing that he belongs in Gryffindor. Mm -hmm. You can really summarize his arc in that way because in the last movie, when he pulls the sword out of the hat to confront Voldemort and kill um, Nagini, that's the moment because only a true Gryffindor Gryffindor can pull the sword out of the hat. Yeah. Yeah. I love the films, but if I were to get real nitpicky, I'd be like, yeah, that moment. Because because it's the moments that I really identify and love the most in the books that I'm like, oh, but you're missing this. But I still think the films on their own are spectacular. On their own, they're a spectacular telling of the wonderful boy, magic wonder boy. Oh my God, I swear to but- God. Oh God. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I want to return to this conversation of what's missing. And I think there are two relatively critical things that aside from the fact that I missed Peeves and I'm so upset about this, but two things that I think that are missing from the film in book one, film one stayed as true as possible to book one, mm-hmm. way truer than the, any of the other films. But I think, so when they're down facing Voldemort for the first time, right. And so you've got obviously the issue with the devil's snare and like, you know, Hermione thinks like, where do I find wood to create fire and light? <laughs> When and she's like, a, witch, you a witch, right? And you're like, oh, great! Like she has this moment where she kind of stumbles, but then she more than I think recovers. She like more than adds value when she makes it through the logic puzzle that is Snape's like potions test. Which like go her for like the fucking bravery to be like, I'm sure. Drink this. I just figured out it's not gonna kill you, right? I'd be like, I don't know. I see. I just relinquish all responsibility from this day. Right. And she like, you know, rereading it the like the last day or so, like she very certainly tells him that he's like, are you sure? And she's like, I'm positive. Like with no questions, no doubt, no nothing. Like in my mind, like, you know, a client asks me a question. It's like literally written in plain English. Like, does it say blue? And I'm like, well, I'm reading blue, but I'm pretty sure it says blue. <laughs> but she's like, you could <laughs> die if you drink. And she's certain. And she's a hundred percent like no doubt about it. Yeah. And in some ways like that is so more so than like the bossy nature of Hermione that gets portrayed in the first movie. I think that's a character characteristic about her that I think is so valuable that like she's super freaking sharp. She's very, very, very smart. And she's got a confidence that I certainly didn't have when I was 11. I'm 29 now. And I, certainly don't have that confidence, but she has it at 11 and this like certainty that yes, the logical reasoning that I use to get to this, I'm a hundred percent sure this is the one. And if you add the factor that she didn't know that she was a witch until she got the Hogwarts letter and that this world is entirely new to her, that blows my mind completely. But then I think the other piece of that, that sort of just does a disservice to the trio is that it's in that moment that Harry kind of steps into this leadership position. He's like, okay, there's an odd enough potion here for both of us to drink it. I'm going to drink this. You drink the one that takes you back. You go get Ron, revive him. 
get on the brooms, go get Dumbledore. And he takes like charge as again, as an 11 year old being like, or 12 year old, no, 11 year old being like, Hey, you go do this thing in a way that I've seen grown people not be able to take that amount of charge. And so that to me too, is like a, an, an element of character development where you've underserved three people, you've underserved Neville, you've underserved Harry and you've underserved Hermione and I get it. It's film and we can't do everything all at once. But to me, those are such beautiful developments of character in a novel that I wish, I wish the world could have seen like live in film, in color, in like fantastic visual effects that we kind of missed. I was also just thinking about how reading the book this time around, I had the epiphany and maybe everyone else that is a fan and reads these books and watches these movies had this thought before I did. Um, but it was the first time I thought of it. The ending of this book is a mirror image to the ending of the last book. Because in this book, Ron sacrifices himself. And Harry stays behind with him so that Harry can go on to confront Voldemort. In the last book, Harry sacrifices himself so that Ron and Hermione can go take care of Voldemort. So it kind of rounds itself out mm. to the true team aspect of their relationship, of their mission. Mm. They are a true team in the books. Which, again, I think you, I guess you kind of get it in the book, in the movie. Like, you get that they're all friends now, but I don't think you understand the depth of it. Like, to, for him to be like, I'm going to go get killed yeah. right now. You guys make sure to kill the snake and make sure to kill him. That is an insane amount of trust that he is putting into his two friends. Right. And it's earned because they went through everything they got. All the other six years. Yeah. 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 I didn't catch that before. I didn't. I haven't actually really thought of that either, to be honest. And in part because, given that my history is that I reread the books in, a, in anticipation of a new one coming out, it's been a while since. I mean, I, I've I've read the seventh book relatively recently, but it's it's interesting when you when you were like, "Hey, will you do this with me?" And I was like, "Sure, I'll reread the book and I'll rewatch the movie." And I felt like this time I read the book maybe a little bit more closely than I had read read it in recent history. Like a lot of the time, I think when I reread the book, I reread it for the pleasure of the experience. And because in some sense, like I know what's happening or I know what's going to happen. I like, I'm almost skimming the book. Right. And this time I think I really sat down and like forced myself to read every single word for what every single word was worth. And there was, you know, mm -hmm. there was more in that than, than certainly just the experience of reliving Harry's adventures. And so it'd be interesting to me as a personal project to do that with the other books, though I, I'm not sure I would do that with the second because the second is probably my least favorite of all the books, but certainly with the others. I have a hard time stuff. with the second one too. But yeah, I haven't, I hadn't actually seen that either. So when it comes time for me and my, either my personal life or in whatever project I in, in take on next is to reread the seventh book and maybe find that because I hadn't seen that. And that's actually super interesting. But again, like I wonder how much of that gets conveyed in the film because you're lost in you're lost in all the activity that's going on in the film. Yeah. My last gripe, my last gripe and the differences. Yeah. 
is when the mo- the book starts out, it starts out talking about the normalcy that is the Dursley household and yeah. how on the moment that, and on the day that Harry gets delivered to the Dursleys, like Vernon goes to work, he happens to be so engrossed with his like, you know, the big order of drills that's coming in that he doesn't see all the owls that are flying past his window every day. And I know that they kind of try to pay homage to that in the film by having like pictures of all these owls outside of the house on the day that like all the letters are delivered through the chimney in the kitchen. But there's something about scene setting and context setting and stage setting of like, you've got this, these three people that view themselves as so normal and so fucking boring and fucked up in their boringness. And they're like pandering to their like (laughs) fat, obnoxious baby son that like you, (laughs) you don't get that in the film. And I agree with Stevie that you can live without it, but certainly in your understanding of why they're so opposed to Harry when they get him, it's so critical in the book that like you understand that they are the picture of normalcy, right? Fucked up normalcy, but they are the picture of the fucked up normalcy. And that's why Harry is such a sort of threat to that state of state of play that like state of being that they're they've been living in and enjoying together for so long oh 100 percent. but I, I agree with stevie that like, in, the, in the film in the film about the magical boy wonder you can live without you can live without that scene so i will give it to stevie you're never gonna let that go. i'm never gonna let it go now that i've found it and i understand that adaptation is not about bringing to life the miracle of the book that you've read that it's like a remix. It's interesting that you bring up the beginning because I did notice something and maybe this is like a really lame observation. Um, and you'll probably have the answer for me in two seconds, but the faith you have, how do people know, how do the magical people know that Harry is Harry? Because he says like one time I was walking down and this is like chapter one, probably or two. He's like, one time I was walking down the street and some guy in a funny, outfit bowed to me some some person shook my hand once out of nowhere it was like these witches and wizards were recognizing him was it because james was famous and that he looks so much like james that people were like oh that must be james's son i mean i imagine there must have been at some point i don't think there's ever an answer in the book so I don't think it's a lame Particularly question. because he's not known once he's 10, right? Like the last time he was seen in that world yeah. was when he was a baby. But I think I think it must be the case that even in like the Daily Prophet, once James and Lily died, there must have been some sort of obitu- ob- obituary. There must have been some sort of article written, if not more than one article written about sort of the falling of the Dark Lord. And one would think that if there were pictures out there of them as a happy family, then you would have at some point seen, if not Harry as a child. And I think obviously the the actor, Matthew, whose name I can't, last name I can't remember, who grows up to look nothing like his childhood self. But, you know. Oh, um, Matthew Lewis. Yeah, but. Hot Neville. <laughs> you know, certainly what the infant looks like may tell you nothing about what the 11-year-old child looks like, but at some point there must have been pictures somewhere in the Daily Prophet about what Lily and James looked like, and that must have informed people. And he's told so explicitly so many different times, you look just like your father except you have your mother's eyes. And I think presumably seeing right. a photograph of that 
would have been enough to clue people in. Cause I think at 11 you look, actually, I guess my argument about Neville is, is, you know, completely unwinds what I'm trying to argue here, but there's enough inkling, I think maybe when you're 11 of what you might look like. And certainly we never have any indication over Harry's like, you know, pubescent years that he starts to look anything other than like his father. Um, and the resemblance is so strong right? that it must've been enough, but I agree. Right. It is sort of this odd moment of like, he's famous in the wizarding world with no regard to the fact that he's actually never been seen in it because he's been living in a cupboard for 11 years. There were a couple other things that I noted in the last scene when Quirrell is fighting Harry, Mm -hmm. when Voldy is fighting Harry. Stevie Um, and Voldy. They're basically the same person. (laughs) Voldy. In the books, it's written a lot more gruesome. Yeah. Because he starts to... Rowling says he starts to blister when Harry touches yeah. him. And I imagine conveying that on screen would scare the shit out of children. So there's something like different about reading, oh, his hands start to blister and actually seeing on screen someone's hands and face start to blister because in the in the film he actually just turns to stone and starts crumpling. Okay. So true story, I'm going to confess something. I started watching the film last night after spending like First of all, I cleaned my entire apartment, which, hello, wow, that takes a lot of time. Um, And then I started making these, like, sticky buns, and I didn't – so you're supposed to – when you're making the dough (laughs) – You have to send me some. I want – So when you're making the sticky buns, you make them in, like, a – you make the dough in a food processor, and I underestimated how long it should be in the food processor because the food processor really helps the dough kind of become a cohesive unit before you start kneading it. And according to this recipe, I really only needed to knead for like five minutes, but because I fucking took the stove out of the um, food processor after like 30 seconds of pulsing it, which God, I'm a fucking moron. I was kneading dough for like an hour. (laughs) And so after cleaning my apartment, kneading dough for an hour and then making myself dinner, I sat down to watch this movie because I wanted to pay attention because I'm like, I'm doing this project with Pam and I got to pay attention to this film. And I did an epic, epic fucking job of paying attention to this movie called The Magical Boy Wonder and his adventures. I swear (laughs) to God. And then... Honestly, at, when we got to the devil's snare, my body was like, fuck this. It's not even worth staying awake for this. And so I actually don't. Are you joking <laughs> me right now? <laughs> not even kidding. I passed out. Okay. I need the viewers to know if you haven't picked this up, like she and I are in complete disagreement. Complete, complete disagreement. disagreement. And, and, and I don't, I would just like to point out that I have seldom in, in every Harry Potter book I've ever read, I, there have been nights where the book comes out and I want to read it and I start reading it in the middle of the night and I will actually stay awake despite how tired I am throughout the night to finish reading this book until literally like physically it's it's not possible to keep reading because I can't physically keep my eyes open. And in this case, I succumbed to sleepiness much more easily than I ever would have had I been reading the book. And it was roughly around the devil's snare. So I don't actually remember how it is that Quirrell like dies, but now that you've mentioned it, it seems somewhat familiar that he crumbles instead of blistering. Once Harry touched him with intention, he started turning to stone and crumbling, which was interesting because he grabs Harry by yeah. the neck and pins him, but nothing happened to him when he grabbed Harry. But once Harry decided to grab him back, that's when he started getting hurt. So I'm like, wait a minute, I thought the love that was protecting him was in his skin, so if you should have started crumbling the second you fucking touched him, but maybe it was once Harry had the intention to start hurting I him. Think, 
I don't, I don't know. Think that's true because I was when I was reading the book. I think it's the case that Coral goes to grab him by the neck and he can't hold on. And he says to Voldemort, who's like the other side of the face, like, I can't hold on to him. My hands are burning. In In the the book. book. Well, I'm wondering if that change happened because they knew that children would be watching. Um, I don't. And that it's more palpable when you're seeing it with your eyes instead of reading it. I don't know. Maybe because I've like, I've so as a as a relatively young child, I remember I was like not paying attention. I was pouring myself a pot of tea or a cup of tea, and I like took the pot of hot water and like wasn't paying attention, got distracted, and ended up pouring hot tea on my leg and like my skin blistered because that's what happens when your skin burns. Oh, no. and so yeah. in my mind, like reading that, that's a very potent issue because a potent image because, and certainly like. J.K. Rowling describes it as such. It's a very, very potent image of like his skin turns red and it starts blistering. And the longer that Harry holds on to him and the longer he tries to hold on to Harry, the worse that it is. And obviously like Harry, the like the blinding pain of it makes Harry pass out. But I maybe you're right. Maybe seeing it would be even worse. But certainly I think the part that's really messed up in that is that the reality should have been that the moment that Quirrell touched him is the moment that he should have started to turn to stone. Yeah. I had one more observation before we get to our next section. Please. Um, Fred and George in the books. Amazing. We love Fred and George. Their love and kindness for everyone and particularly their siblings and Harry is so much more palpable in the books than it is on screen. I still love them on screen. Yeah. They're still so likable and so funny. They really get, they nailed like the trickstery aspect of Fred and George. But when I was rereading the book this week, I was just blown away by their relationship with Ginny because Ginny was crying at the train station. And they're yeah. like, don't cry, Ginny. Like, we're going to send you a Hogwarts a toilet, toilet seat. seat. Yeah. <laughs> Which they ended up giving to Harry when he was in the hospital wing at the end of the movie. Trying. Madame Pomfrey wouldn't let it get through. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And like they were like, no, Christmas is for family. Like Ron, put on your sweater. Harry, put on yeah. your sweater. Like <laughs> they're like so full of love. It was overwhelming. We can totally go to like the only child like crisis that like I have. But like they're such good brothers. But I and agree with you. You completely miss it because you have all these like sweet moments. Even like one of the things that doesn't happen in the film but happens in the book is that there's this moment where Fred and George help Harry get his trunk onto the like one of the last cars because Harry's all by himself. He doesn't have parents or anything or friends, anyone to help him like board the Hogwarts train. But you have Fred and George who help him carry his trunk up and it like occurs to him like we think this might be Harry Potter. And so they tell molly and ron and Ginny, who are like oh so excited like could that really be him and then molly's like even if it is him it's not your business to stare like staring's rude don't be rude like can you imagine how hard this must be for him to have this experience without his parents like could you please be empathetic and they are because the first time you meet ron he's like sitting in the in the train car with 
Harry and he's not saying anything and he doesn't say anything until Harry or Fred and George come by and they're like, Hey, we're going to go sit with Lee George and cause he's got this gigantic tarantula, which is fucking disgusting, but they're boys. <laughs> and he's like, by the way, we forgot to introduce ourselves. We're Fred and George, and this is our brother, Ron. And that's really what breaks the ice like between Ron and Harry. It's not Ron and Harry that break the ice with one another. It's really these brothers that are like, Hey, this is how you be Make compassionate friends. and warm. Like, this is what it means to be kind to people. And that's completely left out of the films. And, oh, it and seems- they totally babysat Harry throughout all the Quidditch matches. Right. And I think it seems fair when you're, you know, you're, you're writing this screenplay. Those are like moments that seem very easy to like just cut out because all they do is take time. And from the screenplay perspective, I understand why you need to save that time because there are so many other adventures that have to happen. But that to me is like the character building of why over time people fall so deeply in love with Fred and George and why it's so devastating when you get to book seven. And one of them has to be without the other. Yeah. Fucking awful. So I have like a bunch of questions for our question of the day, but I feel like we in one way or another covered them. So here, here's the one that I think I'm left at and I would love to hear your thoughts on. Mm-hmm. Sure. Who is the most courageous character in this book? I think for me, it might be Neville. Ooh. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's and a great I think, answer. I think for me, the biggest, like, Only getting fucking 10 points? What the fuck, Dumbledore? <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, granted, I still think, I love all those memes that are like, oh, yeah, you've come down to the wire. And, like, here's, like, just enough points to beat Slytherin um, <laughs> on the internet. Which, wow, that really just describes my social life. Go ahead. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm with I you. I think, fine. I think because in my mind that like the the cast of characters to whom you ascribe courage are probably in this book. Obviously, the trio. Mm-hmm. I think Neville and I think Snape are probably the four, the five characters. Sure, math is hard. The five characters that I think you could in my mind, I think are eligible for, for the courage award. I think Snape Harry, for me gets the courage award for the entire series. But yeah. It's not showcased yet in this particular installation. Sure. And I think, I think in this book, Harry's like the obvious choice. Cause obviously he faces down Voldemort kind of blindly. But to me, that's like, to me, what resonates there is like the sorting hat's initial assessment that like you have a thirst to prove yourself. And in some sense, to me, that is almost about Harry's sort of like infantile thirst to prove himself than it is about courage. You have, I think, you know, Ron, because he takes the blow by the queen in the chess match, which is a courageous activity or a courageous. Totally. Move. Can you imagine knowing that you're going to get your ass beat? Yeah, but and and that one to me is certainly courageous uh, in that moment, but maybe not doesn't quite rise to what to me Neville's courage is. I think you've got Hermione, who I think is courageous. I think just in in who she is as a person. I don't think she ever sort of strays from who she is as a person. Her courage in that moment when she definitively like says this is the this is the potion that you need to take to get to move through the next, you know, wall of fire. Snape, I think is courageous because, you know, he's, 
he takes on quarrel with no one really knowing. And in some sense, courage is really doing the thing that's hardest when no one is acknowledging what you're doing. But, and I think a lot of my, my choice of Neville is probably influenced by another podcast that I listen to relatively regularly called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and sort of we're the idea big fans that, of that shout out to <laughs> Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, Vanessa, um, Casper, please come on my show. <laughs> um, I support that. But I think, you know, one of the things that they've talked about a lot, and I think one of the things that becomes so abundantly clear, and one of the things that Dumbledore, I think, gives, not I think, I know, gives Neville a lot of credit for is the capacity to stand up to your friends and to particularly for someone like Neville who has no friends who's constantly the butt of every joke who's so insecure who's so worried who doesn't know who's just trying to do the right thing and in the face of like being the outsider the face of being like that lonely the face of being that downtrodden like everyone's constantly shitting on you and to still try to do the wrong thing in the face of people who like Harry told him like you're worth 12 of Malfoy but like he still Mm -hmm. stands up to like this person who told him this like really beautiful thing and says I can't let you go out think of Gryffindor on the night that Mm -hmm. they go out to like go down the trap door and I think especially at like being 11 like when it feels he didn't even think he'd get into Hogwarts. He had a hard yeah. time making friends. You know, he doesn't have brothers and sisters at home. His family really yeah. didn't believe in him all that much. Like, takes a lot of courage to do what he did. To yeah. risk not having those friends anymore. Yeah. To someone who said something that was, like, the one bright spot of, like, the books, frankly, as far as Neville's character goes, because obviously as you go on, you realize like Neville's got so many more wonderful characteristics and so much to add um, as a wizard. But in that moment, we don't know that yet. And certainly the characters at issue don't know that yet. And to stand up to those people and say like, I don't care. There's this other thing that we've been, we've been told, we've been told that Gryffindor is more important than anything else. And he has no idea that what they're doing is going off to protect the Sorcerer's Stone in their like childhood arrogance that they can stand between (laughs) evil and the Sorcerer's Stone. But like, he doesn't know that. And so he just, all he really does is like stand up to three friends who are going out on this, like, nighttime evening you know romp, right <laughs> this romp of like points losing trouble inducing adventure and and he just says no you can't go out and be like the cool kids causing all the trouble because there's something bigger at stake and there's something so genuinely innocent about him and that that courage of like genuine innocence to me I think is is the most courageous in the book because everyone else I think has an excuse for why they behave that way. And Neville's Neville has none. There's no reason why it's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's, it's nothing I think, but, but courage. I completely agree. And I think Neville is an excellent choice. It was honestly in my head when I was thinking about this question about who's the most courageous, I was thinking that it was probably a tie between well, Snape obviously is numero uno for me throughout the whole series. Like he's my favorite. Love him. He is absolutely my favorite. Um, but in this particular book, you don't get to you know see that part of him quite yet. So I would say it would be almost a tie between Hermione and Neville. And you mentioned everything that I love about Neville's courageousness. So I'm just going to reiterate Hermione's 
if she chose the wrong potion, Harry could have died. Yeah. And she could have died. Yeah. But she was certain. Yeah. And that, that is very brave and very self-assured for a person of her age. Yeah. So love that moment. Yeah. I agree. Olga. Yes. One can argue that fan fiction is a form of adaptation. We, we, before we get to this fabulous question of yours, I actually am really curious. Yes. Because one of the questions you sent me was, what would you be most interested in taking at, what class would you be most interested in taking at Hogwarts? And I oh, find that's this to be, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I find this to be an interesting question. So which one would you choose? Um, okay. Okay. I would say I'm torn between divination and defense against the dark arts. Mm. But if I were to do defense against the dark arts, I would want either Snape or Lupin to teach me. Okay. So you're wrong about Snape, I but want, definitely Lupin, yeah. I would want Snape as a teacher because he's really smart. I want Snape to teach me how to... Um, Occlumency? Occlumency. I just appreciate his knowledge. I think Snape is a, a brilliant, brilliant professor. He's got a bad rep because he's a, got a shitty attitude. But, like, <laughs> but like, once you understand why, I totally feel for him and get it. Sure, but I feel like you don't ever really get to know why he has that Added bad attitude unless you're like Harry and so really you just got this like really bad attitude fucking professor who's like I'm a douche 100% of the time <laughs> basically eat my shit do your homework <laughs> there's a great oh my god speaking of Snape there's a great moment I caught in this viewing of the first film mm-hmm. that I never caught before mm-hmm. it's when her when they take down the mountain troll in the bathroom on Halloween mm-hmm. and then Dame Maggie Smith as McGonagall runs in and she's like oh my goodness oh my goodness explain yourselves both of you yeah. <laughs> and she's not even acknowledging that Hermione's in the room because like obviously it wouldn't be Hermione's fault because she's the goody goody right mm-hmm. and then Hermione takes the fall mm-hmm. right when Hermione's taking the fall there's a great shot of both of all of McGonagall, Lupin, I'm not Lupin, fuck Lupin's not in this. Of a uh, Quirrell, mm-hmm. it's McGonagall, Quirrell in the corner, and Snape. Mm-hmm. Alan Rickman pulls this fucking look. I need to send you the screenshot. He looks at Hermione as she's like making up this lie, like this. <laughs> like, bitch, you're lying. <laughs> It's like an incredible moment of acting genius by Alan Rickman. And it was cra- I had to stop the movie because I was laughing so hard. I never noticed his reaction because the camera is mainly focused on Maggie Smith. And I just caught him in the background. And it was so funny. Yeah, no, he's he- like, really? You're really going to take the fall for these guys? Yeah, no, he's real special. I, he's a real so special funny. With, oh I, no! Let me ask you: what, what what class would you take? I think actually maybe potions because I like I bake a lot and I cook a lot and I enjoy the idea of like the order of things and how you like you know you make something that's something new out of ingredients you have. So I think because it reminds me so much of baking and cooking, I think I would enjoy potions. But I would the probably have, science and art that is potion making. Correct, and I think I would have <laughs> probably ended up stabbing Snape in the heart at some point because he's such a douche throughout at least throughout every encounter you have of him when harry's telling but the story. he owns it he owns it right but like i own being a total piece of shit as well but that doesn't make it okay that i'm a total <laughs> piece of shit like at some point you have to be not 
the evil thing that you're owning. First of all, you're not. But I, I mean, I you know what? I think that would be my class. Yeah, I think that would be the class I'd want to take the most. He's still arguably the hero of the series, so. Sorry, I, I don't disagree sorry. with that. I think I think he plays an absolutely irreplaceable role. Like the neither the 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 series would not have turned out the way it did if it weren't for Snape and the role he played. And I love the like unveiling of him as a character because you you literally never see the motivation behind Snape until the very very end, and that is just such a beautiful work of art in the way that that's completely hidden from every reader until the very end. And it's it was masterful. hidden from every reader except Alan. Uh, Rickman because apparently Joe Rowling um, and I remember I sat in in a workshop that he was running um, when I was studying abroad and he was talking about how she said just hang in there with him there's more to him and she told him like a little bit of the backstory because if it's written on the page like that like this teacher's just a douche and he hates Harry because of you know how he's famous for this thing and he has some sort of dark history it's a little um one-dimensional yeah definitely but then but but alan rickman does not play this character one-dimensionally not at all yeah um and i think it's really cool that she gave him that information well so that the interview you sent me she like the interview you no so it was the interview you sent me and then the like youtube does the thing where it plays the next thing and mm-hmm. the next interview was an interview with Daniel Radcliffe and and J.K. Rowling. But, like, clearly while they were still filming the seventh series, the seventh movie, the second half of the seventh movie. And he Daniel Radcliffe asks J.K. Rowling, like, did you ever give anything away to anyone? She's like, well, actually, the only person I ever really told anything to was to Alan Rickman, which was to tell him, like, that he actually really loved Lily this whole time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I mean, it'd be interesting for me to know, maybe I'd have to go back and watch the the interview again, but when she told him that and whether or not that had any impact on the way that Alan Rickman played the character, because um, certainly in the first movie, he wouldn't have known that. And he's just, he does this really lovely way, like just really lovely job of being like just a dick to Harry. And he never gave, even like from what I remember of the movies, he never gave away that like he had known that this was all along the underlying motivation. And certainly while reading the books, you never, you never had any inkling. But if you look at his, how he interacts with Harry, you could almost see like, it's not even like he's looking at Harry. It's like, he's looking at James. I don't know. I think there's so much to be said about the fact that yes, he's looking at James in everything except for the eyes and the eyes are lilies. And I do think that there's so much, even, yeah, even when you think about like the ability of any person to in conversation, hold another person's eyes, like the depth of connection that lies within someone's eyes and how much you can attribute to that. And so, yeah, I wonder how much of Alan not just Alan Rickman, but Snape as a character, how much of when he's seeing James and everything about Harry other than the eyes, how that must have impacted. Yeah, because he's got this mission, right? From before he showed up at Hogwarts, he's like, I gotta, I'm got i going to protect this, this person yeah. because I loved his mother. And it's also the right thing to do. But God, I hated his father. Mm-hmm. And God, he looks exactly like his yeah. father. 
There's a lot of complexity there. I'd like to know when she gave him the information, if it was from the get-go or not. I don't... I, because I know that she wrote the epilogue, like, way in advance. And she had to even change it to include Lupin and Tonks' death. But I don't care what she wrote in advance. It's a separate conversation for a separate time, I recognize. But she just... She got, We're going to have the tired. conversation towards the end of the, 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 the last book of the series. She got tired. She was done writing the series. And that was very abundantly clear in the way she wrote that epilogue. Oh my god. I so disagree with you, but sure. It's fine. It's fine. Do you have favorites when it comes to fan fiction of the series? Have you read any fan fiction? And or like, are there any games or websites that you take part in? Because that's just a whole different form of adaptation. Agree. It's a whole different form of adaptation. When I was reading the series originally, like towards the end, she had, you know, built out the Pottermore website and it certainly was not at the same level of built out that it currently is. Right. But she had started to build out the Pottermore website when we were still reading the books. And I did go on there a lot because I think I had such a thirst for like what these characters lives were like, because I'd followed them at this point for like seven years. And I just loved the world that they belonged to and I wanted so much to know them as people. And so mm-hmm. I did spend a lot of time trying to like poke around the Pottermore website, figuring out who like all these other characters were and what their backstories were. And I think somewhere deep in the recesses of my mind, like still hoping like maybe it's not too late to get like late admission to Hogwarts. What house did you get sorted into on Pottermore? I got sorted into Gryffindor, but I didn't take that until like last year, interestingly enough. I think I got sorted um, when I was, when I joined Pottermore, I joined it right when it started. And then I kind of rediscovered it maybe a year ago. And so I took the test twice and I got sorted into Gryffindor and Ravenclaw equally. Interesting. Interesting. Which I'm okay with because... There is like a house cusp theory. And if there was a house cusp, Hermione would also be Gryffindor Ravenclaw. Yeah, I think that's Something right. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, so I think Pottermore is probably the most extensive amount of like fan fiction I've participated in. I will admit, I for a little while was reading fan fiction in part because it came about, I think, roughly around the time that book five came out. And I had finished reading that. And I think I was so touched in a very like sad way about the death of Sirius for so many different reasons and this idea that they had had this relationship with Snape that was so broken when they were kids and there was a fair amount of fan fiction that I stumbled across that had to do with like the the you know Moody Wormtail Padfoot and Prongs as kids Mm -hmm. and that to me seemed really interesting and I think if I ever wanted to go sort of delve back more deeply into any of that sort of you know the adaptation in the form of fan fiction it would be in sort of what their childhoods were like and what their time at Hogwarts was because in part because I think you're invited to think about it by virtue of the Marauders map and what that means for Harry and he's obviously invited Mm -hmm. to think about what it must have been like to to be his father working or um, walking through the halls of Hogwarts and having all these experiences and certainly questions like if you had gone to the exact same school your parents had gone to the questions you might have asked your parents about like well what was that experience like that you never got to ask um, if you were Harry because your parents didn't exist and every chance you got 
to sort of meet someone and talk to someone who could have given you any inkling of what that experience was like effectively has like, you know, died or shut you out in some way, shape or form because they weren't close enough to you or they didn't feel it was appropriate or they didn't have that relationship and then, or they died. But that to me was always really interesting is what it must've been like to be at Hogwarts when you were with sort of the gang of like, you know, James and Remus and Sirius Absolutely. and Peter and, and like Lily, you know, cause you get this introduction of like Lily actually not really liking James when they were super right. young. Cause James is a fucking jerk. And like, she as, was closer to Snape. Right. And as like, you know, as all jerky boys are sort of what's mm-hmm. that like, how did he become a human being worth marrying and having a child with? Because you certainly didn't like him in right. the beginning. And what was it about him that changed? And that sort of entire backstory is really interesting to me. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful answer. It's way deeper than my answer, which is I once came across a piece of fan fiction that was a love story between Draco Malfoy and Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those exist Very as well. Very sexy piece of fan fiction. <laughs> those exist as well, yeah. Um, All kinds of stuff exists in yeah. the fan fiction. I love that kind of stuff. The creativity that goes behind Um a lot of those pieces. It's just so much fun. And yeah, I'm also part of Pottermore. And I also do, um, I don't know if you have downloaded this app at the Harry Potter um, Hogwarts mystery app. No, I haven't, but I get ads for it all of the time. Oh my God. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. A dear friend of mine told me to download it. And now we, we both play and we like screenshot like our cool like robes and the pets that we accumulate <laughs> and the gems and the adventures that we're on. That's fun. Is no, there anything fun. that you would like to address before we go? Um, I think the only thing I'd like to address is that I actually really am grateful for you for sending grateful to you, grateful for you for sending that link of, you know, Joe talking to Stevie because it did certainly change my mind. And I know that certainly in this discussion, I've come off as very negative or anti the Harry Potter adaptation, but. But you're never going to call it anything, but. Magical boy magical wonder. Boy wonder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I thought that that conversation between JK Rowling and Stevie, whose name I apparently refuse to remember. Steve Cloves, the Cloves. screenwriter Cloves. for all of the films. <laughs> sure. That guy. Um, <laughs> I think it was just so in, in, insightful and interesting to hear their conversation and the fact that J.K. Rowling was so forgiving and accepting and understanding that really an adaptation is by no means what I wanted it to be, which is bringing to life the experience. But it really was just how do you reinvent this for a completely different medium? And maybe that's what adaptation is meant to be and should be and just something that I personally struggle with because I feel so just so close, so strongly and so closely to this particular series because I grew up with it. Um, and because I just, I really do love it and I love its depth and it's, it's breath and it's, I don't know, just everything about it is so heartfelt and warm and to see it be adapted in a way that is frankly, as honest as probably any adaptation could be for so many years, for so long felt like not enough. And there was something very inspiring about listening to JK Rowling essentially accept Stevie's adaptation for what it was and it made me a little bit more forgiving which obviously has not come through in this discussion but did make me a little bit more forgiving 
of the adaptation and what and the films and and how they've played out. So I thank you. No, I think it came through. I think it came through. I think also like the hilariousness, and I think that like you when you care about a piece like the way we care about it, and so many you know thousands millions of people care about this the job of the person adapting it just gets harder and harder you know he did not have an easy job ahead of him by any stretch of the imagination no totally yeah totally thank you thanks for having this conversation with me this was great thank you for coming on the show you have been incredibly insightful and eloquent and i honestly like expected nothing less i am so thrilled Olga, is there anything that, like, you'd like to share? Do you have any projects coming out? Are there any books that you're reading that you're loving and that you recommend to our listeners or movies that you would like them to watch? Where can we follow you? What's going on in Olga's life? Um, So definitely don't follow me. I'm, like, the world's most boring human being. Um, Plus, I think she's private, so, like, (laughs) she's probably not going to add you. Nothing to I'm currently watching The Sopranos, which is an total adventure in and of itself for a lot of different reasons for an entirely separate discussion. Um, I've just recently watched Knives Out. I highly recommend that to everyone. Books I'm reading. I'm reading this book that I actually found through a different podcast um, that's called Love Letters. The book is called Tell Me What You Want, which is really interesting. I can hope no one I know ever listens to this with all due respect, Pamela. Um, It's an really interesting... It's like the... um, God, what was the name of the guy who did the big sex study in the 60s? And it's basically like bringing that current. It's an entire book about like sort of what people fantasize about. Um, Are you talking about a series? No, this this is literally just some nonfiction book that I heard about on a different podcast and started to read because I thought it was interesting. Um, A nonfiction book about sort of human sexuality and fantasy. And it's very interesting. Very, very interesting. You just reminded me of a series that um, Michael Sheen was the star of, and it was something about something sex. I never watched it. I need to look it up. Yeah, no, this is just, this is literally just like a nonfiction book by a psychologist. Masters of Sex? No? Nope. Nope. Different thing. I've I've heard of that, but no, this is is just a nonfiction book. That and what everybody is saying, which is the, the body language book by the FBI guy that you told me about. Yeah, I, I picked I'm that one up too. Yeah, splitting between the two of those. So that's been really fun for my dating life. Is like telling the person that I'm out with that I can totally read everything that their body is saying to me. <laughs> Someone asks me, they're like, "What is it saying?" I'm like, "You really like me." <laughs> but then we like never went out again. So what the fuck do I know? <laughs> that may say nothing about you and everything about the person, but yeah, so funny. Yeah, good. Good recommendations. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a fun conversation about a very fun topic. So I appreciate the uh, opportunity to chat. I'm so glad. I appreciate it too. Thanks so much for listening. This was based on an adaptation podcast. I'm Pamela Portnoy. We'll have a new episode out to you every other Monday. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. And please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Based on Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to our guest, Olga Zlotnik. And thank you to Tiffany Hamoff, Jackson Palmer, Claire Palmer, Maya Ashkenazi, Jordan Ross Weinhold, Jason Crow, and Soundwork Studios. Bye! Doodles! <laughs> Thank you.
thank you to our guest Olga Zlotnick, Tiffany Hamoff, J- I swear <laughs> to fucking Christ. This is what it's like in a self-tape room with me. Fuck my life. We got this far, didn't we? <laughs> you can do it. I have faith in you. I literally have one sentence to say. 